This evening's episode of Ah Tonic is sponsored by Ravensburger Games. Looking for some spooky board game fun for the family this Halloween? Check out Horrified Universal Monsters. Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, and other iconic horror film monsters descend upon your village to wreak havoc, hunt heroes, and terrorize villagers in this cooperative board game. Work together to defeat the monsters before the town is destroyed for good. Horrified Universal Monsters by Ravensburger Games. The stakes have been raised. Visit ravensburger.us. Look for a link in the show notes. Startle after a wintertime visitor leaves no footprints in the snow. Scream when a teenage Halloween ghost hunt becomes far, far too successful. Run when what bursts out of a casket is not what was placed inside it. All this and more weird history, strange science, and the paranormal. Its wide orange smile flickers in the night. It knocks on your door and extorts you for candy. It's this week's ghostly Halloween goblet of Odd Tonic. Welcome to the parlor. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Maxwell. The tea is poured, and please take a well-deserved seat by our fire, dear guest, because you've done it. You've made the perilous journey through the extra scary episodes that have comprised our countdown to Halloween. And now, here it is. Mm -hmm. Episode 31, the official Odd Tonic All Hallows' Eve show. The night air is absolutely crackling with autumn energy, and it makes me feel so very nostalgic. Halloween has just always been a favorite holiday. I, I just grew up feeling this holiday was different and wickedly unique. I love the aesthetic. I love the dark mysticism vibe. I love everything spooky and I want to live a life with magic spells in it. <laughs> you can't convince me otherwise. I grew up creating my own costumes which probably translated into cosplay and mermaiding later in life and I love decorating my bedroom. I would take eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper and cover my entire wall and then draw and color a whole mural just graveyard haunted house on a hill black cats full moon and of course a witch flying on a broom oh that's so adorable how old were you when you did that oh like from eight to 18. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's lovely well you know that i completely empathize with your fondness love I remember proclaiming many times during my childhood that I held Halloween above all holidays, even Christmas, because for me, Halloween was the intersection where many magical things came together. I mean, I just adored autumn and the fiery change of the leaves. I love the creativity of dreaming up elaborate costumes and pulling all the elements together. Plus, I was lucky enough to have a mom who was a whiz on a sewing machine. So, thanks, mom. <laughs> and I loved how Halloween used to completely disrupt an ordinary school day with our costume parade. But this was all preamble for 
the surreal spectacle that is Halloween night, right? And if you really think about it, that is when the entire world goes completely mad. <laughs> I mean, porches are covered with large vegetables that are <laughs> hollowed out and given carved faces. House windows are filled with spiders and black cats, ghosts and witches, and, and children dressed as monsters and robots, and fairies roam the neighborhoods, going to the doors of absolute strangers and demanding candy, which is enthusiastically dropped into their rapidly filling pillowcases. It's a mass communion of shared creativity, goodwill, and pure nonsensical fun. And every year, as a kid, I would just stop among the crunching leaves on the sidewalk and the scent of wood fires and the crisp autumn air, and just for a moment, bask in the perfectly beautiful insanity of it all. And this is one of the many reasons why we're together. Oh. <laughs> Your image of a classic Halloween night is the perfect segue to discuss tonight's show, my love, because this evening we'll be following the timeless All Hallows Eve tradition of telling ghost stories by candlelight. Some of our very favorite tales that we've been saving all year to share with you, dear guest, on this very night. So... Grab a throw blanket big enough to cover your head and get cozy. The stories begin now. In the later part of the 18th century, a man named Frederick Ross and his family inherited a large parcel of land along the north and south forks of the Holston River in what is known today as Kingsport, Tennessee. Like most wealthy Southern families, Ross did own slaves, as well as a few indentured white servants, but he was not known to treat his slaves cruelly. In 1818, the work on the majestic plantation house known as Rotherwood was finished. Taking the name from Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, the house and the grounds were truly the spectacle of the region, with curved driveways, column-lined porches, hanging floral gardens, and even a pool on the roof it was every bit the dream home for the Ross family. Ross had several children, but everyone remembers his daughter Rowena the best. With her raven hair and fair complexion, she was considered to be the most beautiful creature and had the education and manners to back it up. Rowena was soon engaged and her father immediately started construction on a mansion on the grounds for his daughter, the space to be an exact replica of Rotherwood, but instead of red brick, it would be entirely white. This was to become the first tragedy to befall the Ross family. Rowena's lovely home, never to be lived in, burned to the ground not long after completion. Then, on their wedding day, the groom and several of his friends decided to try their hand at fishing before he was married. Taking a small boat out on the Holston, the men were inside of the house, and as Rowena looked on, the boat capsized, spilling the men into the icy depths. Everyone on shore watched in horror as the men floundered in the water, and the surging currents pulled them down. All the men managed to make it back to shore, except 
for Rowena's fiancé. To her devastation, her true love did not surface from the river. His body was never recovered. Understandably, Rowena fell into a deep depression. The once vibrant young woman became a somber recluse, secluding herself away in her third-floor bedroom, looking out her window at the river, silently mourning her lost life and love. After two years, Rowena gradually began to reclaim her life. She would be social in small bursts, and eventually, a man happened to cross her path, and again, she felt the warmth of love slowly making her heart beat again, and the two were married. Fate, however, struck once again, as her new husband died not long after the wedding vows from yellow fever, and again, Rowena fell into a heavy depression, and this time, it did not break for more than a decade. But time does slowly pass, and Rowena tried for happiness, and she did marry again. She had a daughter with her new husband, and for six years, she finally found some fragile happiness. However, her story did meet with a tragic end. During a vacation back at Rotherwood to see her father, Rowena said that she had seen the ghost of her first love, her true love. She had said that she had heard his ghostly voice calling to her and seen his pale, white hand reaching out from the dark waters of the river and beckoned to her. That night, she slipped into her wedding gown and silently made her way outside into the moonlight, barefoot, following the trail to the shores of the river before slowly and calmly wading in, walking until the water was up to her neck And finally, she vanished below the surface, taking her own life. A mere weeks after her suicide, appearances of her apparition began. Reports of seeing a woman in white roaming the river in the grounds of the mansion, looking for her lost love, became a common occurrence. From that point on, the fate of Rotherwood was infallibly sealed. The once happy Frederick Ross was himself in a deep depression over the loss of his daughter, and in the years leading up to the Civil War, he made several business decisions that backfired, with huge losses and failed investments that cost him dearly. Furthering the heartbreak, he sold Rotherwood to the person he knew could afford it and the losses it had taken, Joshua Phipps, who, as a very strong coincidence, was also Ross's overseer and bookkeeper. Ross freed what slaves he could rather than giving them the fips, left his once happy manner, and died years later as a broken man. But the tale of Rotherwood does not end here, dear guest. Though Ross had been a kind man, Phipps was not. He was known in his day for his malice, his cruelty, and his irritable nature. Rotherwood began to change. Slave cells were added inside the basement with dirt walls, dirt floors, and no windows, with only one entrance. The field slaves were forced to huddle in the small room at night. Iron bars were set into the one entrance with no glass and no protection from the elements. On the third floor, a whipping post was built into the walls. 
Phipps was often overheard stating that when he died, he wanted to be buried standing up on top of the hill at Rotherwood so he could forever be looking down to watch the slaves working. His evil did not stop at the slaves and his treatment of them. Phipps was just as cruel to his own family. Not liking his own daughter Suter, he had him murdered in action when called to battle during the Civil War, which caused her to die of grief and a widow at the age of 20. In the summer of 1861, Phipps fell ill. The doctors could not explain his condition. He was feverish, almost delusional. Afraid of contagion, the cruel man was moved out and quarantined into the carriage house. A young slave boy was assigned to keep watch over him and to fan him to keep him cool. For days, Phipps lingered, half-awakened fever with labored breathing. One sweltering afternoon, in the presence of the boy, suddenly Phipps snapped fully awake. His eyes roving wildly in their sockets seemed to fixate on a point high in the air above the young boy. Turning to see what his master saw, the boy himself let out a blood-curling scream of absolute horror. A sickly, buzzing cloud had begun to form in mid-air, writhing and swarming, and the boy realized what it was. It was hundreds of flies. The cloud of flies grew thicker until finally the entire cloud itself descended upon Phipps. Covering his face, their teeny hairy legs crawling into his open eyes as they rammed themselves up his nostrils, into his ears, and down his open, screaming mouth. The swarm was so thick that Phipps finally started to suffocate, choking to death on the living, buzzing flies. Regaining his senses, the boy bolted from the horror to get help. When he returned with the family and doctor, Phipps lay dead, his eyes staring up, his mouth slack and frozen on his face with a look of horror. There wasn't a single fly in sight. They had vanished as though they had never existed at all. But again, dear guest, this tale doesn't end here. Phipps' funeral, even to this day, is a legend to locals in the Kingsport region. The funeral casket was to be pulled by two large horses up and around to the cemetery plots on the grounds. During the funeral, the wind picked up with an oncoming storm. The black cloth covering on the casket began to stir in the wind, strangely enough to make those present wonder if the man himself were really dead. As the procession up the hill began, the two horses started to struggle, digging deep furrows into the earth, as though the simple cart and the casket were too heavy for them to budge. Unable to move the casket, two more horses were attached and slowly, the hearse began to move again, each horse straining to make the wheels turn with its unnatural weight. Overhead, the sky darkened with churning clouds as thunder began to roll and grumble. Just before the cart reached the cemetery, a bolt of lightning snapped down out of the black clouds, cutting a tree in two, 
knocking the trunk violently across the path and blocking the road. The onlookers were worried and began to mutter about evil and God as the pallbearer simply picked up the casket and carried it to the open graveside where the pastor stood waiting to lay Phipps to rest. As the pastor began to give Phipps his final words, the river below the gathering began to bubble and churn as if it were boiling, the currents moving so fast the water itself was muddy. The thunder above grew worse, and a movement drew the eyes of the crowd. The casket, under its dark cloth, was moving. It was vibrating, as though something inside wanted out, badly. They heard the scrabbling of what sounded like claws against wood, and with a howl, a gigantic black dog burst out of the casket, bolting out from under the black cloth as the attendants screamed in terror. The dog snarled at them, eyes gleaming, before bolting off across the grounds and vanishing into the woods. Impossibly, the casket itself was unopened and intact. Shaken, the onlookers rushed to the pastor, who himself was ashen white. Finishing the rites, Phipps' coffin was hastily buried, and as the onlookers moved to go back down the hill, the first drops of rain began to fall. There was another sound. Some would swear later to their children and neighbors, a sound that mingled with the thunder the sound of laughter, and they said that voice belonged to Joshua Phipps. Weeks later, the Phipps family began to whisper of things moving in the shadows of the house, of hearing animal feet running through the hallways, a heavy laughter, and the sound of Joshua Phipps stalking his way around the home. He would appear at night at the foot of the bed and yank the bedclothes off, keeping anyone from sleeping. The slaves were riled to the point of riot, claiming that the ghost of Joshua Phipps had risen from the grave along with a giant black dog to torment them every night. The family, to calm their own fears, agreed that Phipps' grave would be dug up to prove once and for all that the man was truly dead. They dug through undisturbed ground to open the casket, which they claim was found empty. All but a few large black animal hairs were inside. Not long after, the slaves revolted, destroying Phipps's gravestone and desecrating his grave. Eventually, Rotherwood was purchased by the U.S. government in 1940, and the family moved away to North Carolina. Passing through several owners, the current owner is a prominent doctor at the local medical campus. She began to renovate and restore the home, She has fully succeeded in her goal, turning her home into a stunning memorial to the past, as well as once again giving Rotherwood an inhabitant to call it home. Even in modern times, however, Rotherwood still holds a darkness in its heart. During the renovations, the owner and her friend were both at the house as workmen were working on plumbing and wiring in the basement, where the former slave cells were located. One of the workmen claimed that his partner suddenly looked up from his work and froze in place, his skin going white and his eyes wide. Without preamble, his partner screamed and ran, fleeing up the stairs as if he was running for his life. Astounded, 
The owner, her friend, and the workman watched as the man leapt into the work van, spun gravel out and fled, leaving his tools and his partner and a stunned owner behind. Later, the man was calm enough to tell everyone what had happened. He said he had been working, and he had looked up when he felt someone staring at him. When he did, he saw a man materialize out of the wall, dressed in a dark suit. Next to him was a gigantic black dog with glowing red eyes, its mouth open, fangs exposed, snarling deep in its throat. The man looked at him and grinned a sadistic smile and slowly raised an arm and pointed at him. Instantly, the dog had leapt for his throat, and that's why he ran, because the dog, that no one else could see, was chasing him down like a rabbit. He said the dog followed him up out of the basement, to the van, and even a little bit down the road, before it vanished into thin air. The workman said he would never set foot on the property again, and he never did. This hound of hell and the apparitions of not only Joshua Phipps, but also that of Rowena Ross and the spirit of slaves murdered on the grounds are said to wander the property. During thunderstorms, one can hear the hound baying, almost screaming, mingled with the echoes of Phipps' cruel and maniacal laughing. We love this story, and when we did our research to verify its claims, we discovered that history and folklore were at loggerheads starting in 1948, when Mrs. Mark W. Potter told these stories to the Kingsport News. When the Phipps family heard them, they were strongly opposed and called the stories wild and sensational. Mrs. Potter simply said they were stories she heard in her family— and it seems her family was not alone. Jill Ellis also told similar stories learned from her childhood when her parents were caretakers of Rotherwood Mansion in the 1920s. Nonetheless, the Phipps family refuted them and further stated that it was propaganda fabricated by Union sympathizers simply to justify the looting of Rotherwood Mansion during the Civil War. So what is the truth? It may be lost in history. But we can tell you this, dear guest. Over the last 100 years, Rotherwood Mansion has changed hands multiple times by owners who live there only very briefly before either selling again or suddenly dying. A mysterious lack of interest in owning the palatial estate led to the house languishing for many years and falling into disrepair. Eventually, it was purchased by Dr. Lenita Tybalt in 1991, and, by her own account, the house is indeed haunted. Our next tale comes from one of our favorite ghost story anthologies, Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places by Brad Steiger. It is just loaded with wonderful stories told by Steiger and guest writers, including these two by Pastor Robin Swope. I worked at a local cemetery for six years while ministering in a parachurch organization. 
I was a gravedigger. A lot of people get satisfaction out of having a jacket or shirt that displays those words upon it with casual recklessness. But I was never too proud of the occupation. It was a very dirty and disturbing occupation. With every worm that I smashed into the ground with our dirt-tamping machine, I could not but think of the human flesh we sent to the nether regions below. When you are in such a disturbing occupation, you have no one to turn to but your co-workers, who often relate to you stories of the strange and unusual. Perhaps you do so to find sanctuary, to help you cope, to help you think that you are not going insane. Needless to say, I was told quite a few stories. For some reason, the most startling stories are set in the mausoleums. The graveyard where I was employed for six years was in Erie County, Pennsylvania. It had a large mausoleum situated on its 80-acre grounds. The tomb is distinctive because it is the only Protestant mausoleum in all of Erie County. Many well-to-do Protestant families are buried in the simple T-shaped building. One of the head maintenance men was clearing snow from the sidewalks and offices of the cemetery early in the morning one day in the middle of January. It was still dark, but the freshly fallen snow illuminated the landscape in an eerie glow. When it was time to shovel the snow around the mausoleum, the maintenance man decided to save gas and walk the quarter mile from the office building to the tomb. Halfway there, he saw a figure walking behind the building. From the size of the figure, it looked like a child, but the worker could not be sure. It was a little odd, but not entirely out of the ordinary that someone would take an early morning walk around the cemetery for exercise, but it was downright peculiar for someone, especially someone with a child in tow, to do it after a heavy snowstorm. Warily, he surveyed the grounds for any sight of a child or parents who might be getting some brisk morning exercise but he saw no one as he neared the building. He circled around to where he swore he saw the figure of the child, but there were no footprints in the snow. As he looked up from the new snow, he saw a face peering from around the corner on the other side of the building. Just 50 feet away from him, he could not make out features, but he saw the rough shading of eyes, nose, and mouth on the shadowy figure that was examining him. It was about three feet tall, the size of a young child. Hey, what are you doing here? He shouted and started to make his way through the drifts to the curious face. But as soon as he started to move, the head quickly disappeared from the corner. The maintenance man walked faster, but when he arrived at the corner, the child was gone. As he looked down to see where the young one had run to, he once again saw no footprints. Amazed and disturbed, he threw his shovel to the ground and mumbled to himself. 
He was sure someone was playing a trick on him. But who could it be? As far as he knew, he was alone in the 80-acre cemetery. Alone except for that small child who could disappear without leaving any tracks in the snow. He shrugged and made a mental note to drill the other members of the crew when they came in to see if one of them was up to shenanigans. If it was a trick, they would probably egg him on a bit just to get some jollies at his expense. So, trying to push aside the oddness of the event, he went about shoveling the snow. That is when he heard the voices. At first, he thought it might be the wind. The mausoleum was out in an open field, and sometimes the wind whipped around the building fiercely and made all sorts of odd noises. But after a while, he knew it was not the wind. He heard the whispering voices even when the air was still. They were barely audible, but they were clearly distinct and individual voices. It was as if a large group of people had gathered together in the mausoleum and were having a whispered conversation. He silently moved around the sidewalk to try to locate the voices. Then, one of the voices seemed to be a little closer, and his heart almost stopped when he realized where they were coming from. The voices were coming from inside the crypts in the mausoleum walls. Frozen in fear, the maintenance man thought he was going insane, so he slowly moved closer to the cold marble slab layered with ice. The icy slabs concealed the cement crypts that made up the inner and outer walls of the building. As he put his ear to the freezing stone, he heard a distinctive whispering voice say, Shh, he hears us. In an instant, he dropped the shovel and ran to the office building. He never heard the voices again, but perhaps... That is because that was the last time he shoveled snow around the mausoleum in the dark. In the late 1970s, a cemetery near Pittsburgh built a new mausoleum. It had been promised for years, and the salesmen, eager to make a lucrative commission, had pre-sold crypts long before they were available. So many makeshift cement above-ground crypts were quickly built for those who had purchased the mausoleum spaces and had passed on before the tomb was built. When the mausoleum was finished, it was the job of the gravediggers to disinter the bodies and place them in their new crypts. It was a disgusting and dirty job for the liquefied remains of the deceased had leaked out of many of the caskets. To make matters worse for the gravediggers, everybody had to be physically identified by the mortician who had originally embalmed the victim, and not by clothing or jewelry, to guarantee that the corpse in the casket was the person named on the makeshift crypt. 
The supervisor remembered each decaying face, for the experience had been burned into his memory. But one in particular stood out. Most of the bodies had long since dried up and become desiccated. If any flesh was left, it was almost like tanned leather hanging off the bony skeleton. Some looked as if they were made out of jello as the corpse had decomposed into a liquid goo. But one was odd. When they opened the coffin of the old man, it was like he had just been laid to rest, except for one disturbing and obvious fact. He was covered with a furry gray-green fungus. All his flesh had been eaten by the fungus, but held the shape of his face so well it shocked the superintendent and the undertaker. Except for the odd color and the fleece-like look of his skin, he looked like he might just open his eyes or mouth any moment. They quickly got over the initial shock and noted that, yes, he was who he was supposed to be, and put the coffin in the second level, in the back of the newly constructed mausoleum. Monday morning, when the maintenance crew came to open up the office, they noticed the mausoleum door was open. As they drew near the open door, they immediately knew something was wrong. Something was smeared on the glass door of the mausoleum, and as they looked inside, they saw that one of the crypts was open, and it was empty. Fearing they had grave robbers, they went to call the police, but as they rounded the corner to head back to the office, they passed the old makeshift cement crypts. One was open, and it held a casket. It was the casket of the mold man, right back in the place he had been interred for the last five years. To make sure everything was all right and they did not have a grave robber playing a joke, they opened up the coffin. The body was there and the jewelry he wore was still on his corpse. They called the police, but there was nothing the police could do except file a vandalism report. The body was placed back in the mausoleum. After they sealed the crypt again, the staff noticed that the smear on the door was the same color as the mold that covered the man. There also seemed to be small pieces of the stuff on the carpet that covered the floor from the crypt to the doorway. The body did not look molested at all, and the casket had shown no visible signs of forced opening, but it was still very disturbing. Two weeks later, it happened again. Everything was the same. The crypt was opened and the casket was found resting in its old spot. Even the smear and the pieces of mold scattered here and there. But one thing was different this time. It had recently rained and the ground was soft. A single trail of footprints ran from the mausoleum to the makeshift crypt. And they were almost erased by the tracks left by the dragged coffin. And it was then that they noticed that the handles of the coffin were also smeared with 
the gray-green mold. It was as if the mold man had somehow come out of the coffin and dragged it back to its original resting place. But that was physically impossible, wasn't it? Nevertheless, a close look at the corpse and the fallen mold made everyone present shiver. They were definitely the same material. Once again, the body was laid to rest in the mausoleum, and the funeral director brought in a Catholic clergyman to give last rites and bless the tomb. The mold man stayed put this time. The maintenance crew always gave his crypt special attention. They always feared that one morning they would find it open again and see the evidence of the mold man once again walking the earth. When you work at a cemetery for any length of time and meet others who have lived the life of a grave digger for years, you hear some strange and unexplainable stories, and you hope that you are not the next one to come in the one morning with fear in your eyes and tell the others, you are not going to believe this. But... This is horrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mausoleums are forever changed for me. Next time I pass one, I'm going to be wondering, okay, which one has Moldy Joe in there? (laughs) Uh, I know, these stories are an extra special brand of creepy. (laughs) And when I first read them early this year, Mm -hmm. I said to you, these are going into our Halloween show. You are my witness. Mm -hmm. It's true, he did. Because, dear guest, Maxwell often reads me ghost stories to fall asleep to at night. (laughs) If that isn't spooky love, I don't know what is. Yeah. I guess we really are a couple of weirdos, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) When we return, we're going to share a ghost story that is so bizarre that, well, if you have a pet ferret, (laughs) you'll probably never look at it the same way again. And then we're going to deliver our Halloween ghost story, Piece de Resistance, a true account so utterly terrifying that you'll probably never look at us the same way again. (laughs) You're listening to Odd Tonic. We have to go carve a jack-o'-lantern and TP our neighbor's house. (laughs) We'll be right back. You may recall our episode on superstitions, mirrors, and scrying a while back. It's one of my favorites. A couple of our spooky mirror game examples were inspired and sourced from a brilliant and spooky website called theghostinmymachine.com. Its evil mastermind is author Lucia Peters, and we are excited to share with you that she has a brand new book. It brims cover to cover with more eerie midnight diversions from century-old classics like 
light as a feather, stiff as a board, to modern internet-born challenges such as the duplicitous answer man. And we love it. Yes, we do. <laughs> it's called Dangerous Games to Play in the Dark, a guide to summoning spirits, divining the future, and invoking the supernatural. With a title like that, how can you not already love it? Mm. It's published by Chronicle Books and is available now, just in time for Halloween. Dark things come in small packages, <laughs> and this little book is darkly delicious. Yes. Lucia creates magic, capturing the rules of each game to play and what the rewards and consequences will be for doing so. <laughs> you feel a little wicked just reading the words as you turn each page to see what happens next. Dare to light a candle and try a game or two, if you must. But just perusing these often treacherous sounding games <laughs> is a delightfully scary treat in itself. I truly feel it's a must have for all Bloody Mary sleepover survivors <laughs> and connoisseurs of the creepy. Dangerous Games to Play in the Dark, a guide to summoning spirits, divining the future, and invoking the supernatural by Lucia Peters. It's available everywhere fine and spooky books are sold. Look for a link in our show notes. Do you remember life before Odd Tonic? Perhaps you are a destitute spirit, adrift between the tombstones, with only the harvest moon and the howling wind to keep you company. Or trapped in a cursed painting, only able to move your eyes to look about at the very boring wallpaper. But now you're here with us in the parlor, your warm cup full of tea and your ears filled with more spooky and fantastic stories than you could have ever dreamed of. Hang a lantern this autumn night and help others find their way to the parlor. Please write us a kind review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or in your favorite podcast app. Or subscribe to us on YouTube and leave a comment on your favorite episode. And don't forget to haunt us on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Odd Tonic Society. Your fellow oddlings await you. Welcome back to our special Odd Tonic Halloween edition. <laughs> <laughs> so far, we've attended easily the scariest burial in the history of interments, <laughs> and we've witnessed the scariest mausoleum moments in the history of post-interments. <laughs> now we're going to embark upon the strangest true ghost story you will hear this Halloween, or perhaps any other. It too comes from Brad Steiger's Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places. It was in the fall of 1931 that a mysterious entity manifested in the home of James T. Irving and his family on the Isle of Man. His daughter Vori saw it first, just seconds before Irving caught a glimpse of it himself. It was as large as a full-grown rat, with a flat snout and a small yellow face. Vori suggested that perhaps it had been the creature responsible for the scratching noises they had heard in the parlor on the previous night. The strange animal was not satisfied with simple pranks and disturbances for very long. 
it began to mimic the calls and cries of the family's barnyard animals. Irving then made the remarkable discovery that the creature was extraordinarily intelligent. Members of the family only had to call out the name of an animal, and the mysterious creature would respond with the correct imitation. The night noises began to increase, and the family was beginning to find them less than pleasant. Their strange visitor would blow, spit, and growl from the dark corners of the bedrooms, keeping the family awake all hours of the night. Once, in an effort to lull herself to sleep, Vori began to chant nursery rhymes aloud. She was startled to hear the weird animal begin to repeat the rhymes after she had finished. In an excited voice, she called to her parents to come and share her discovery. The creature had developed the ability to talk. The Irvings stood at the door of their daughter's bedroom and exchanged incredulous stares. The animal's voice, although a full two octaves higher than any human's, was clear and distinct as it sing-songed nursery rhymes. The mysterious animal quickly put itself on intimate terms with the Irvings, addressing them by their first names, Jim and Maggie. It carried on long conversations with them and announced that it had chosen to make its home with them. The Irvings were not very enthusiastic about having the strange animal become a permanent resident. The family got so little sleep that they were almost to the point of selling the farm and leaving. However, they realized it would not be easy to sell a farm that was not only quite isolated, but also haunted, and their talking rodent was no longer a secret. On January 10, 1932, the Manchester Daily Dispatch and the London Daily Sketch both ran articles on the mysterious talking weasel. Have I ever heard a weasel speak? wondered a reporter for the Daily Dispatch. I do not know, but I do know that I heard today a voice I never imagined could issue from a human throat. The journalists found the Irving family sane, honest, and responsible folk not likely to indulge in difficult, long-drawn-out practical jokes to make them the talk of the world. As the number of newspapermen wanting information about the ghosts increased, James Irving insisted that there were no ghosts on his farm. He explained that it was only a strange animal that had taken up residence on his property. Since the peculiar animal's arrival, the talking weasel had caused ghostly poltergeist phenomena to occur. Strange scratchings and unexplainable sounds were followed by furniture and small objects moving about on their own. But this ghost did something that no other entity of its ilk had ever done before or since. During the course of its stay with the Irvings, it left the family more than 50 rabbits on the kitchen floor. Each of the rabbits had been strangled. If a true weasel had done the stalking, it surely would have used its teeth on the throat of its prey. As the phenomena increased and the entity became stronger, it claimed to be a mongoose born in Delhi, India, and it often used Indian words and sang Indian folk songs. The creature's claim that it was a mongoose was reinforced by the fact that a farmer in the local village of Dorlish Cashin had once brought a number of the animals from India to kill off the rabbits that had become a threat to his field crops. 
No one had ever received more than a glimpse of the animal that had moved in with the Irvings, but those who did see the strange animal described it in terms that might well have applied to a small mongoose. James Irving began to call his uninvited guest Jif. This name met with the approval of the self-proclaimed mongoose, who told Irving that when he was in India, he lived with a tall man who wore a green turban on his head. Jiff also informed Irving that he was born on June 7, 1852, which made him 79 years old. Jiff's activities were by no means confined to the Irving cottage. He wandered far afield to stalk his rabbits for the family meal, and he took delight in hiding in village garages and in bringing back gossip to share with the Irvings. The weird entity also had a cruel streak that it most often unleashed on the villagers. Once, it harassed a group of men repairing a road by carrying off their lunches. Several of the workmen swore they had seen their lunch bags being toted off by an invisible force. Another time, Jif was blamed for striking a garage mechanic with a large iron bolt. Irving later said that Jif had boasted of the deed. The famous cyclical researcher Harry Price sent an associate to the Isle of Man to investigate the news stories he had begun to collect on the Irving family and their unexplained guest. It was a rare stranger who made a favorable impression on Jiff, and Price's investigator, a Captain MacDonald, was no exception to the rule. From the safety of his hiding place, Jiff screamed that the man was a doubter and demanded that James Irving send him away. When MacDonald tried to coax Jeff out of his crack in the wall to pose for a picture, the entity displayed its ill humor by squirting water on the investigator. Later, it hurled a needle at the man, which missed him and struck a teapot. Irving tried to console the researcher by revealing that Jeff often threw things at the family. When the mongoose was seen sitting on a wall in the farmyard, MacDonald pleaded with Vori to take his camera and see if she could approach Jiff and get a picture of him. The girl began walking towards him, speaking to the entity in a low, pleasant voice. She lifted the camera to take Jiff's photo, but he was gone before she could click the shutter. Captain MacDonald received little more than the entity's curses for his troubles, but at least he had heard the mysterious mongoose speak and got a glimpse of it. When Price went out to the island to investigate the disturbances for himself, the temperamental Jif was silent during the entire duration of his stay. The entity demanded to be served food by the Irvings and was especially fond of bananas and pastries. Although it often seemed genuinely concerned about the family's welfare, the mongoose did not relish any open expression of affection. Once Mrs. Irving put her hand into Jif's hiding place and began to stroke the animal's fur, she instantly withdrew her hand with a sharp cry of pain. Jif had bitten her and had drawn blood. The fact that Miss Irving had actually touched the manifestation encouraged Harry Price to suggest that the family attempt to obtain a bit of Jif's fur for laboratory analysis. As if it had read their thoughts, the mongoose awakened the family late one night and promised the Irvings that it was going to present them with a special gift. Jif directed them to a particular bowl on the shelf in the kitchen. 
The Irvings turned on the lights and hurried quickly down the stairs to seek out the appointed bowl. There, in its center, was a tuft of fur. The next morning, James Irving mailed the fur off to Price, who in turn relayed it to the London Zoo. Unfortunately, it turned out that the cunning Jif had simply played a prank. The fur was that of a dog, not a mongoose. Determined to obtain some shred of tangible evidence of the creature's physical existence, Price sent the Irvings four plasticine blocks in which Jif could stamp the impressions of his feet. James Irving set the blocks in Jif's hole in the wall and coaxed his strange house guest to imprint his feet on the doughy material. The next morning, the family awakened to Jif's cursing that making impressions in the plasticine had been difficult, but he had done it and he bade them to go and look. That time, it seemed as though the entity had really cooperated with the family's wish to secure a permanent memento of its visitation. Excitedly, James Irving shipped the casts off to Price and anxiously went back to his farm to await the results of the analysis and identification. Mr. R.I. Peacock of the British National History Museum Zoological Department concluded that one print might have been made by a dog, but the others were of no mammal known to him unless they belonged to an American raccoon. In Peacock's opinion, he doubted if the cast represented foot tracks at all. He stated that the tracks had most certainly not been made by a mongoose. R.S. Lambert, an associate of Price's, suggested that Jif was a voice and nothing more, but witnesses claimed to have seen something scampering about that was decidedly a physical being. Throughout the duration of the phenomena, James Irving wrote in a journal. In the journal, he stated, The mongoose said to my wife, I know what I am, but I shan't tell you. I might let you see me, but not get to know me. I am a freak. If you saw me, as I truly exist, you'd be petrified, mummified. I am a ghost in the form of a weasel. Jif continued to live with the Irvings for four years, alternately chatting with them or cursing them. Then, the mysterious talking mongoose simply seemed to fade into nothingness, becoming but another of the Isle of Man's many legends. Yep, that is the most bonkers ghost story <laughs> ever. This has been one of my favorites since the first time you read it to me. Mm -hmm. It's it's just so unique. And I have this duality of emotions. Jif seems so cute and nearly part of the family and at the same time clearly haunting and scary. Yeah. I just don't know how the family dealt with this situation. How do you handle that? It's just so fascinating. Yeah. Their reactions are completely relatable, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you can completely detect that they were an ordinary family going through an extraordinary circumstance. Yes. One that's so crazy that it's easy to dismiss. Mm -hmm. And yet there were multiple credible witnesses who documented their experiences. It's really captivating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. Our last selection is another from Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places, a story written by Chris Holly. Maxwell also read this one to me at bedtime one night, and it did not lull me to sleep. <laughs> I am going to tell you a story that I have been told is true, 
since I did not experience it firsthand, I am only able to repeat to you what was told to me. This event took place in the mid-1960s in a small town along the Long Island coast. This little town is built along the banks of a river. It looks like many small New England towns you may find along the coast of the eastern seaboard of the United States. Many of the houses and buildings in this little town were built long ago when the area was first established. Some date as far back as the 1600s. It is an old area full of history. One of the houses found in this town dates back to at least the 1750s. It is an old mansion that stands large and tall a few hundred yards behind a little church that was built in front of it about a hundred years later. Alongside the church, there is an old graveyard filled with broken headstones and fallen grave markers. The church, graveyard, and the old house have stood together in this old town for as long as anyone can remember. Everyone who lives in this little town knows the house to be haunted, and supposedly many in town have seen a ghost or two wandering about the grounds of the graveyard. The little church is still used. In fact, it has been the Sunday place of worship for most of the townspeople as far back as anyone can remember. The interior of the church was renovated in the mid-1960s. It was at that time that a new pastor took over the congregation. He was young and was determined to bring the church back to its original strength and beauty. I must admit, he did a great job. The church is one of the town's most beautiful buildings. The new pastor also had a lovely little cottage built for himself on the grounds. The old house behind the church has had a reputation going back hundreds of years as being a haunted, dangerous place. Everyone in town knew from the time they were small children to stay away from that house. No one ever went near it other than the people hired to be the caretakers of the property. The caretakers spent very little time there. They would finish their work quickly and leave the place locked tight and alone as it had been for centuries. Now and then, you would hear a story floating around town that someone heard screams or saw strange people looking out of the windows of the old mansion. There were stories that once a very crazy doctor and his witch-like wife lived there. Town legend claims the couple practiced monstrous experiments on both animals and humans, murdering many and burying the dead on the property. Claims of seeing ghostly figures of both people and animals wandering the place have been passed along by the townspeople for as long as any of us can recall. I never thought much of the house. I stayed away from it, mainly because it had a dark, bleak appearance that 
really did not entice you to go near it. An interest in this old mansion and the church came to me by way of my cousin, who also lived in town. My cousin was a few years older than I was. She was in her late teens at the time of the incident. It was in October, about a week before Halloween, that the event happened. My cousin and her boyfriend were driving around town with a few other friends when one of them brought up the old mansion and all the ghostly tales that were told about it. They decided it would be fun to take a closer look at the old house and the graveyard on a little ghost hunt of their own. Being young and foolish, it never occurred to them that this may be a very dangerous, even deadly thing to do without the proper experience or protection. They soon found out that fun was far from what they would encounter on this cool October night. My cousin, her boyfriend, two other girls, and one other boy were all packed into the Ford Mustang that belonged to my cousin's boyfriend. Slowly and silently, they entered the dirt driveway of the old mansion that ran along the side of the old graveyard. They parked the car at the corner of the graveyard in between the house and the cemetery. The group got out of the car and made their way into the graveyard first to see if they could find a ghost and have a giggle. The five teens walked along under the moonlight, reading the old grave markers while the wind blew the fall leaves about their feet. It was a typical fall night in the Northeast, and perfect for hunting ghosts. But as they walked along the rows of old gravestones, the five teens began to feel uncomfortable and a bit frightened. The two girls in the group started to hear noises behind them as they walked along. One girl insisted she could hear someone or something following them. As they became more and more uncomfortable walking among the dead, they decided it may be more fun to venture on to the mansion to have a look around. The five teens had no idea what a dangerous decision this would prove to be. They walked toward the mansion, jumping from behind bushes, pushing and shoving each other, trying to frighten one another. They were giggling and acting as kids their age do. Only one of the girls noticed something in the second floor window in the front of the house. She stopped dead in her tracks, hushing the others, telling them to look at the window. My cousin's boyfriend whispered, Did you all just see that? He too saw something or someone standing at a window on the second floor. The group stood there, watching. The other boy with them suddenly yelled out, Boo! Which sent the other four kids jumping clear off the ground. The group laughed and continued walking around to look at the side and back of the strange old house. 
As they made their way to the rear of the mansion, they noticed a broken down shed in the back corner of the yard. The group walked toward it to see what the little building was used for. The shed was a smaller version of the large main house. The teens thought it may be an elaborate playhouse and wanted to take a closer look. It was about the size of an old-fashioned double garage. The little house was exactly like the big one, including an open front porch. The teenagers wandered onto the porch and tried to look in the windows. The windows were so dirty and the night was so dark, it was impossible to see inside. One of them twisted the front doorknob and to the shock of all, the door flew open as if someone had pulled it from the other side. Uncertain what to do for a minute, the teens stood there looking at each other. They decided just to take a peek inside. The five of them walked in to find a large open room with walls that were lined with shelves. In the middle of the room was a large table. The place was filled with cobwebs and dirt. The group walked around looking at the shelves, which were lined with bottles of different sizes. The teens were silent as they carefully looked around. Finally, one of the girls picked up a bottle and held it to the moonlight coming through the dirty windows. She yelped in disgust and tossed the bottle back onto the shelf. The bottle had what appeared to be a dead animal floating in it. The teens began to look more carefully at the bottles lining the shelves. To their revulsion, every jar had what looked to be some type of fetus or a piece of some kind of living creature. group was stunned and quickly became frightened. They decided it was time to leave and quickly ran back out into the yard to make their way to the car. The two girls and the other boy were ahead of my cousin and her boyfriend. They were running as fast as they could toward the car. As the group ran across the yard, my cousin slipped on the fallen leaves and fell hard to the ground. Her boyfriend stopped running to help pull her to her feet, but the other teens kept running full speed toward the car. So, my cousin and her boyfriend found themselves alone on the side of the dark old house. My cousin's ankle was badly sprained and she could hardly walk, much less run. Her boyfriend lifted her to her feet and half carried, half dragged her along toward the front of the house to make their way to the car. Without warning, without any sense that it was coming, my cousin and her boyfriend were hit by a force that sent them both flying into the air. They landed about 10 feet apart on their backs on the dark side yard of the house. Before either could react to what had just struck them, my cousin started to scream and fight with an invisible attacker. Her boyfriend watched in horror as my cousin tried to fight off something that he could not see. He ran to her side as she punched and fought with the air. He couldn't believe his eyes. 
He tried to pull her up from the ground, but each time he would reach down to pull her up, he would be shoved back to the ground a few feet away from her. He could see her face was bleeding as she continued to scream and fight. Her boyfriend made a few more attempts to help her, only to be thrown in the air away from her. My cousin's face and arms were covered with blood. He knew he needed help and started to run and scream for the others to help him. But his friends had already heard the struggle and had started back when they saw my cousin's boyfriend being thrown through the air like a rag doll. Thankfully, one of the girls knew immediately that they needed help and took off at a full run for the pastor's cottage. She made it in seconds and started pounding on his door, yelling for help and crying. The young pastor was home and quickly opened the door, stunned to find a hysterical girl. She told him her friends were being attacked by something invisible at the old mansion and needed help. The young pastor did not blink or think twice. He grabbed three things, a bat, a wooden cross, and a Bible. When the girl and the pastor arrived at the old house, the scene before them terrified them. My cousin lay on the ground, covered in blood, still fighting against her attacker. The other three teens were trying to stop the attack, only to be thrown all over the yard. The pastor began to yell prayers even as he ran toward the group of teens and the evil, invisible attacker. He ran to the side of my cousin and placed the cross on her chest. Immediately, it was thrown into the air. The pastor yelled for the others to get it, then he placed it back on her body and held it firmly in place with all his strength. He told the boys to help him, and they all pressed the cross to her body. The pastor started to pray while holding the Bible to his heart. The beating by the invisible thing stopped. The pastor cautiously pulled my cousin to her feet. The young pastor instructed the group to run toward the church while he and my cousin's boyfriend followed, dragging the badly beaten girl. The group had almost made it to the edge of the churchyard when they all heard and felt it coming. Behind them, they could feel the ground shake as thunderous, pounding footsteps charged from behind. The pastor screamed for the group to continue running toward the church. The corner of the old graveyard that belonged to the little church was only a few yards ahead of them. When the pounding stopped, the three teens entered the church-owned land first and kept running toward the church as the young pastor had commanded. The pastor, my cousin, and her boyfriend were right behind them. As they arrived at the church property, they no longer felt their attacker behind them. But then they heard it. From the yard of the old house came a howl of rage so horrifying all five teens broke into tears. The group made it to the church. The pastor brought all five teens inside the church and prayed over them before doing anything else. He then took him into his little cottage where he called the police. My cousin was taken by ambulance to the local hospital where she was treated for her cuts and bruises and released. The police wrote this incident up as teenagers assaulting each other. The hospital listed it as my cousin being in a fistfight. The young pastor was ridiculed for playing along with the teens who had 
obviously let their fantasies run wild during their trek to the haunted house. The pastor, my cousin, her boyfriend, and the three other teens all tell a different story. They talk about the night they came face to face with evil, fought it, and won. I believe my cousin, of course. I know her to be a logical, well-balanced adult who has lived a good, productive life. I will tell you that she stayed in contact with that pastor her entire life. Shortly after this incident, the haunted house was fenced off at the pastor's insistence. The old house was finally demolished about 20 years ago, but up until that time, it continued to be known as the haunted house behind the church. Who knows what evil lurks in dark places? My cousin will tell you only that she knows it does exist. And my brain can tell you, I believe it. (laughs) This is exactly the type of story that if I knew where this place was, I'd be content to just leave it alone. I'll be at home with my tea. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. That's what my grandpappy used to call a humdinger. (laughs) It's a perfect Halloween ghost story, and you'll find many, many more of them in Brad Steiger's Real Ghosts, Restless Spirits, and Haunted Places. It's one of our favorites, and you can find an affiliate link for the book in the show notes. Brad was a prolific writer as well as a respected paranormal investigator, Mm. so you just can't go wrong with any of his many books. Very true. Oh, love, I know we're running long, but I'd really hate to go. Oh, me too. We've been looking forward to this episode for so long. Yeah, it's sad that it's here now, ending so soon. Such as Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about our first odd tonic meetup that happened in Seattle this week. Yes. Oh, my goodness. It was so delightful. I just kind of don't have words to describe it. (laughs) It's just fascinating to meet people and share stories and philosophize about how wonderful our odd world is. Yeah, I I agree. It was Mm. it was really terrific. And I think that my biggest takeaway was this. If you're a member of our odd tonic Facebook group, I think you'll agree that within this community, you can really sense that we are all kindred spirits. Mm -hmm. And that if we had a chance to be in a physical room together, it would be a blast. Well, that proved to be completely true. But that feeling of being kindred or cut from the same cloth was so much more intense (laughs) while speaking to people in person. It was startling. I think some people told stories that they rarely or never tell that night. Mm -hmm. And because the group was just so open and welcoming and (laughs) frankly experienced in the crazy things that occur (laughs) in this world, uh, we just ate it up. And, Mm -hmm. and that really moved me. I think, I think it was the combination of that and my second drink on the back of a long patch of sleep deprivation that had me ranting about Bigfoot and the (laughs) interconnectedness of everything paranormal, man, like a frothing madman before the night was over. So um, to all who was there, 
Uh, sorry you had to see that. And thank you for not <laughs> posting it on Instagram. What? You just aren't living your best life if you can't shake your fist and rant about interdimensional Bigfoot. <laughs> I mean, isn't that why we created the podcast? So you wouldn't have to just leave it as your voicemail greeting? <laughs> 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 oh, I love you. My interdimensional Bigfoot rants and I are very lucky to have you. Oh, well, we can be lucky together. Mm. <laughs> we should probably go. Yeah. Um, oh, but before we do, we have to let you know Odd Tonic will be offering a rather novel treat on the day of Halloween this week. Right. So hit the subscribe button right now so you can be the very first oddling on your block to get it and show it off to your friends. Yes, it's quite fun. And Jennifer was really the brainchild behind <laughs> it. And I know you're going to love it. Yes. Okay. I guess that better wrap up this Halloween edition of Odd Tonic. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on your Halloween goodie. Plus, you'll never miss a show. And leave us an iTunes or an Apple podcast review so others can find us too. Or find us on YouTube, if you're not already listening there. Hello, YouTube listeners. <laughs> and leave a comment on your favorite Odd Tonic episode. We'll be back next week with more weird history, strange science, and paranormal peculiarities. This is, dear guest, goodbye for now. But remember, if on Halloween night you awaken to the sound of blowing spitting and growling from a dark corner of your room, followed by the singing of nursery rhymes and random cursing. Don't worry. It's just us. Happy, Happy Halloween! Halloween.